Morning. Morning. It's so good to be here. My name is Abhishek Babu, and uh, I'm here with my wife Patricia and our two children. And it's it's a delight to be here. And I'd like to thank Pastor Mark and the session and you all for inviting us here in this beautiful place on this beautiful day to worship with you. Yeah. Um, if you're willing, would you please open the Bible, which is will be found in the pew, uh, to page 975. Galatians, we'll be looking into Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. I'll be reading from verses beginning from verse 13 through verse 24. Hear God's word. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But of the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passion and desire. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our God, and our Redeemer. Amen. According to the United Nations Department of uh, Economic and Social Affairs, in April of this year, India, the country which I'm from, surpassed China to become the most populous country in the world, right? Well, I'm not sure. We should celebrate. India is a home to more than 1.4 billion people, right? That is staggering, isn't it? But you know what's more staggering? More than 19 million people uh, in the world's largest democracy, India, are enslaved to what is called bandhua mazduri, a term used for bonded labor. To give you a perspective, it's like the entire state of New York in chains, enslaved to bonded labor. Bonded labor is an ancient uh, system where lenders force their borrowers to pay off their debt by bonded labor, right? And this creates generational inequality. So you'll have Kids born in slavery without even knowing what freedom is. 
right? 19 million people. 19 million people. But if you ask the average Indian about this bonded labor, chances are he or she would either deny its existence or kind of undermine its pervasiveness. If I'm honest, I only came to know about, you know, fully about bonded labor only when I attended uh, an international justice ministries uh, seminar as a college student in Bangalore, India. Right? Uh, in that seminar, I came to know about what the evil of bonded labor. And as some of you might know, uh, International Justice Mission is an organization spread across 17 countries in the world to combat slavery, human trafficking, and violence against women and children, right? The speaker at that event, a Christian herself, shared a story of rescuing a family of four, right, with two children aged 12 and seven, born in slavery. I still remember getting chills down my spine as the speaker described the expressions of these children as they walked out of that slavery. Overwhelming excitement, fear. But what impacted me the most that day, even, even beyond this, was uh, the story or the experience of the speaker herself. She shared, when I saw the children walk out free for the first time in their life, the reality of my own salvation became extremely palpable. This is what she said. Jesus rescued me from my slavery to sin and the burden of the law. I am that child who was once a slave. And Jesus welcomed me into his arms. That was powerful. Isn't it interesting how we have these bouts of profound sense and appreciation of the beauty of freedom, especially when contrasted with the ugliness of slavery. But if you're honest, we will admit that this profound experience of freedom is not our daily reality, right? In fact, we often forget we are redeemed sinners, rescued from the bur burden or bondage of sin and the law, united with Christ. In fact, on a day-to-day -day basis, we oscillate. We tend to oscillate between two extremes, right? We either rely on our efforts to merit this gospel freedom, or we indulge in sin and abuse our freedom. Both works righteousness and licentiousness, we know, are efforts. They are selfish efforts, and they are false alternatives of freedom. We know that, right? I don't have to tell you that. Yet, somehow, we can't help it. But here's the good news. In this very well-known passage, we see Paul reinforce the gospel truth. This is the thesis of this entire letter, but in particular this passage. Freedom is the very essence of Christian faith. To be a Christian is to be justified by faith in Christ, free from the guilt of sin and bondage of the law. That's what Paul is talking about to these Galatians and to us this morning. We will examine this passage under three main points. First, we'll look at the nature of Christian freedom. Second, we'll look at purpose of Christian freedom. And thirdly, we'll look at motivation for Christian freedom. All right, let's look at the nature of 
Christian freedom. Before we get into the text itself, let's, let me give you the background. As all, all of you, or some of you know, uh, Paul writes this letter to the church, churches in Galatia. Now, Galatia, a majority of them were from pagan background. They were Gentiles, as we uh, know them. And they have a situation. They have a problem in their church. Now, what is the problem? Uh, they have, they're all new believers, and they're infiltrated by what Paul calls the Judaizers, or false preachers, or false teachers, right? Now, these were Jewish background Christians who came mostly from Jerusalem. They came, they, they came into these churches in Galatia, and they would look at these Christians and say, wow, it's great that you're Christians now. Once pagans, now Christians. Yes, that's great. Paul preached the gospel. That's awesome. But you're still missing this exclusive Christian experience. Now, these, these Christians' eyes popped up. What is this exclusive Christian experience? And why are we missing it? And how can we have it? Now, these, you know what the solution was for these Judaizers? They said, well, you know, in order to experience this perfect Christian freedom, you need to do two things. There are many others, but... Essentially, these two things. One, you got to get circumcised physically. And secondly, you have to come under the law. Like you have to uh, fully endorse the Mosaic law, ceremonial, you know, other laws, right? Now, Paul hears about this and he's furious. He's furious. He's angry. This is one of the angriest letters of Paul, but it's not written like how we write angry emails, but it's also very edifying. <laughs> you know, Paul addresses in this letter two things, the sufficiency of the gospel for salvation, which is freedom, and sanctification, which is outworking of our freedom. In other words, Paul says, gospel is not just the ABC of Christian life. That is, oh yeah, I heard the gospel, I'm a Christian, now I don't know what I'm doing. No, it's not just that, but it's the A to Z of Christian life. In his defense of the gospel, Paul masterfully deconstructs these Judaizers' argument for the necessity of circumcision and submission to the law in order to fully experience the Christian salvation. Now, in chapter 5, Paul particularly emphasizes the freedom aspect of our salvation. From this point on, when I say freedom, think salvation, right? Because salvation is rescue from our bondage. It is freedom, right? So, Paul focuses on that. If you look at the first 12 verses of chapter 5, Paul wants the Galatians to stand firm in their freedom and not to lose their Christian freedom. According to Paul, gospel freedom can be lost when Christians fall back into rule-keeping or works righteousness. Well, it's important for us to understand as Christians, when we, when, not if, when we fall back into work righteousness, we don't necessarily lose our salvation, but what we lose is the freeing joy of our salvation. We lose the joy of our salvation. I mean, the scripture is testament for all this. You see David's psalm where he's talking about my bones feel like they're getting broken. I mean, he's weeping. That's David essentially losing the joy of salvation because he lived in sin, right? Now look at verses 13 through 15. Here, Paul wants these Galatians not to abuse their freedom. Now, according to Paul, to fall into licentiousness, right, amounts to abusing the freedom, right? Works righteousness, losing the freedom, 
licentiousness, abusing the freedom. Notice verse 13. For you are called to freedom, brothers. It's a, it's, it's a really fascinating statement to think about it. Paul specifically reminds these Galatians of their calling. The gospel freedom was not secured by their religious performance or by their piety or their inherent goodness. God didn't choose them because they were these poor little pagans and they needed a God. In fact, God, by his grace, called them out of their bondage to sin. Just like how he has called all of us who call himself or herself a Christian. They did not seek it. They did not deserve it, but they received it by grace. Now, Paul had a very complex challenge at hand as he makes a careful distinction between the law, freedom, and grace, and sin. You know, these Galatian Christians were enamored by these Judaizers' claim, especially of the whole, uh, you know, higher level of Christian experience and Christian living. And what has happened is, these Galatians were so enamored by that that they thought it was a legitimate claim. Now, if you think about it, for these Galatians from pagan background, the concept of law, ritual, were not alien concepts, right? Because they knew about this. And now these Judaizers are coming and saying, hey, this is the law. Here are these ceremonies. And they're like, oh, maybe this is what it means to be a Christian. Now, this situation reminds me of one of the many challenges gospel-centered churches face in India, right? If you know anything about India, India is a land of religions and castes and what have you, right? 88% of Indian population is Hindus, right? And around 15% Muslims. Anyway, the, the influence of moralistic religious worldviews is so tremendous in some broader evangelical churches, right? The concept of ceremonies, rituals, karma. Now, when a church heavily influenced by these work righteous, works righteousness, when they reach out to Hindus and Muslims, they invariably appeal to the fundamental concept of works righteousness to them, right? Now, what happens as a result? It is no surprise that many Hindu background or Muslim background Christians sadly have a very distorted understanding of the gospel, particularly as it relates to uh, the law and what, how do we apply the law to our Christian life, right? That's sad. As a result, these new converts either fall back into their previous works-based righteousness to merit the salvation or worse, they fall into licentiousness, thereby abusing the gospel freedom. You see what's happening there? These are the two extremes. No matter which culture, what culture you are in, these are the two extremes that rob us of our freedom. Now, Paul here exposes both legalism and licentiousness. He calls them as bondage, as slavery, producing insecurity, fear, self-centeredness, anxiety, Lack of assurance. Friends, this passage serves as a warning and an encouragement for us today. Take a moment to examine your own heart. To identify your freedom status. Some of you 
are Christians for decades. Some of you are new, perhaps weeks, months, years. But either way, take a moment to examine your hearts, to identify your freedom status. Are you joyfully experiencing the freedom in Christ? Or are you going through seasons of insecurity, lack of assurance, fear, lack of joy? Remember, friends, we lose our freedom when we rely on our performance to merit the freedom that we have not paid anything for. We abuse our freedom when we live in unrepentant sin, seeking counterfeit security, happiness, pleasure to satisfy us and not Jesus. Before we wrap up the first point, let's go back and learn what, so what is the nature of Christian freedom? According to Paul, Christian freedom is a calling. We have received it from God as a gift. And Christian freedom can be lost if we fall back into works righteousness. Christian freedom can be abused if you fall into licentiousness. And most importantly, Christian freedom is not freedom to do anything or nothing, but Christian freedom is a call with a purpose, right? Because Paul anticipates these Galatians believers to say, wait a minute, Paul, hang in there. If God calls us to freedom from the guilt of sin and the bondage of law, doesn't that mean that gospel gives us license to sin? Why shouldn't I seek pleasure as I'm no longer under the law? What is the scope and purpose of Christian freedom? And how does it influence our day-to-day life? You know, these concepts or doctrines could be so broad that we'll just leave it here as we step out of the church, right? But how does it? How does it influence our day-to-day life? How should it influence our day-to-day life? We will unpack these questions in our second point. The purpose of Christian freedom. Now, Paul starts to reveal the purpose of Christian freedom in the latter part of verse 13 and 14. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Friends, this is radical. This statement from Paul is radical. We live in a culture where every virtue is used as a means to an end. Personal satisfaction, right? No one even asks you, why you are marrying someone? Is it for the benefit or the edification of the other person? No one even questions you if you decide to leave a person because I'm not happy in this relationship. That's, that's the culture we're living in because every virtue, every good thing is a means to an end, personal satisfaction. Interestingly, it's not just the case in the West. I'm not saying, here's the guy from the East coming in talking about Western culture. No, let me tell you this. It is the same case in the East as well, particularly in the Eastern and Middle Eastern religion. Every virtue is employed as a means to an end, personal salvation, right? Either it's satisfaction or salvation. All virtues are used as a means to an end. For instance, if you're a Hindu, you are only called to love your neighbors because that is what? Good karma. It is useful in the day of judgment, where in order to attain moksha, your good has to outweigh your bad. Therefore, love. Even whether you like it or not, just love, because that might add some 
brownie points, right? In other words, both in postmodern culture or religion or moral, moralistic religion in the East, the only incentive to love God, well, maybe not the only incentive, but one of the incentives, major incentives to love God is that he's useful, not because he's good, not because he's loving, and certainly not because he's beautiful. But do you see what Paul is doing here? He's encouraging these Galatians to use their freedom to serve one another in love. Why? Because the gospel has taken away the guilt of sin, the guilt of legalism, and the motivation to sin, the motivation to be licentious. One commentator put it this way, the gospel frees us from the law that is self-centered, merit-based obedience for the law, other-centered, joyful obedience. Friends, as Christians, you are bondage-free. Only, constrained only by love. Christian freedom is true and beautiful only when it's exercised in love. Paul shows us that serving others in love is the most pleasurable aspect of Christian freedom. Only by loving others freely, we present ourselves as loving people. In other words, we are not called to love people because they are lovable or already lovely, but we are called to love people and become the loving people. Now, how do we enjoy and exercise Christian freedom? Well, if you ask Paul, he said, you would say, by loving and serving others. There is no law against love, as love, in fact, fulfills the law. And love, no other, no other concept, but love defines the scope of Christian freedom. What is the scope of Christian freedom? The answer is love. Now, look at verses 16 through 18. Now, Paul, before showing us the purpose of freedom, Paul has one more question to answer. The question is, how does Christian freedom influence our day-to-day -day life? This is very relevant, right? Now, what he does is he introduces, this, he introduces two motivational factors or systems as the opposing forces, right? One he calls spirit, and the other he calls the flesh. Now, the word spirit, several commentators talk about this, the word spirit used here indicates the renewed uh, Christian's heart, right? The part of our heart that is renewed by the Holy Spirit. It's an ongoing process. We are being renewed by the Holy Spirit. That is what Paul refers to as uh, spirit here. Now, by flesh, Paul means the aspects of our heart, that is a Christian's heart, which is not yet renewed by the Holy Spirit, right? Now, these Galatian believers can live in freedom by conquering the desires of the flesh, and they can only conquer the desires of the flesh by submitting to the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, on a daily basis. In other words, mere submission to the law cannot ultimately conquer the desires of the flesh. Mere submission to the law or virtue, so whatever people call it these days, cannot ultimately conquer the desires of the flesh. That's what Paul is saying here. Now, it is important for us to know that Paul does not present spirit and the flesh as some kind of like 
dualistic force. They are not in this eternal battle like uh, two equal and opposite forces. This is sometimes tricky to explain, especially to the Eastern culture where everything is dualism, like dualistic, good and evil. There's this battle going on between two equal and opposite forces. Now, Paul is very clear. He is not presenting the spirit and flesh like that. Nor does he describe a perpetual state of despair where the believer is utterly unable to do any right thing. Right? Now, what else is he saying? According to Paul, as Christians living in the already but not yet, right? Or what we call the overlap of the ages. As Christians, we were in darkness, dead in our sin. Jesus has rescued us from that. And we have the security of eternal future where we will be with him, right? But right now we are here. Something has happened already and we are awaiting something. This is the overlap of the ages. It's like, I keep telling, it's like, you know, when your mother is cooking something, you know that it's coming. You can probably get a taste, it, you know, if your mother is not looking. And you know it's coming, but it's not yet there, right? It's not yet there. That's what Paul is saying. This is the overlap of the ages. And this is not, Paul is not calling Christians to grin and bear stoicism. Or despair or nihilism, right? But we are called to stand firm, walk in faith, submit to the spirit. Now the real question is, what is the dominant motivational system in your life? In other words, what informs your obedience? Is it joy or is it fear or anxiety? Are you swept away by the anxiety, what you see within you and what you see in the culture? And is that what informs your obedience or lack of it? Now, one way to know is by looking at the outcome, right? It's pretty evident. Paul says, works of the flesh are pretty evident. One way to know what is our motivational system, which, you know, what's our dominant motivational system, is by looking at the outcome. Paul calls them the works of the flesh and fruit of the spirit. Please look at verse 17. Now, every time Paul describes the word desire in relation to the works of the flesh, he uses the Greek word epithumia, right? Now, epithumia in Greek means over-desire or an all-controlling longing, right? Now, according to Paul, the works of the flesh are the outcomes of yielding to the over-desires of the flesh or the all-conquering longing of the flesh. Now, we can broadly categorize the works of the flesh, what Paul is enumerating here, into the areas of actions and attitudes. Some of them are actions. Some of them are our posture of our heart, attitudes, right? Now, sexuality, for instance, which includes sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, religion, which includes idolatry, which is inadequate substitute for God, or sorcery, or in some translations called witchcraft, which is counterfeit work of the Holy Spirit, faking the work of the Holy Spirit, relationships, envy, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, enmity. And fourthly, substance abuse. Paul is addressing that as well. Drunkenness and drunken orgy, right? Do you notice the theme here? Sin is described as an all-consuming addiction. A self-seeking indulgence 
without any care for the well-being of others. The works of the flesh are utterly dehumanizing. Now, Paul is not talking about our infrequent lapses. Paul is not saying, you sinned today, one of these, that's it. You lost your salvation. No, he's not talking about that. Paul is very clear. Paul is talking about habitual lifestyle or a habitual practice. He makes it very clear. If you claim to be a Christian today, yet your life is marked by habitual indulgence without any resistance to sin, no sign of repentance, then you need to, you may need to ask yourself whether you're a genuine Christian or not. Friends, remember, we are saved by faith alone, right? That's, that's the Reformed Presbyterian mantra, right? We are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone, right? Now, Paul is onto something here. He's talking about the purpose of Christian freedom. Now he's coming back. Okay, what is the purpose then? If faith, is, faith that saves is never alone, what is the purpose then? Notice verses 22 and 23. This is a very classic, classic verse in the scripture, right? Very familiar. It's fruit of the Spirit. Paul uses a botanical metaphor or an agricultural metaphor to signify the purpose of Christian freedom. Now, works by nature are what? Are individual efforts to earn something. You work to earn something, right? And if you're doing it for free, you might call it something else, but if we work to earn something. In contrast, fruit signifies organic growth, right? It is the confirmation of the work of the Holy Spirit, and it also indicates the conformation of Christians into the image and likeness of Christ. Right? That's what the fruit indicates. Now, the fruit of the Spirit points us to the nature of Christian growth. Now, I would highly recommend you to uh, listen to, I mean, there are many pastors, including your own pastor, but I was, several years back, I was very much influenced by Tim Keller's sermon on this passage, particularly the fruit of the Spirit. And, of course, I, we don't have time for that now, but he, he talks about the nature of Christian growth here, which I have borrowed, where growth, the Christian growth, that is, is gradual, right? We can never see Christian growth, but we can always measure it. In fact, I think, I personally think our spouse, you know, is the better indicator of our Christian growth, right? Because no one knows us better than our spouse. And they would tell you, they would let you know for sure, whether you're asking for not. But growth is gradual. Secondly, growth is inevitable. If you're a Christian today, you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, the fruit will grow. It's not optional. No matter what your life is like, whether you're going through pain, suffering, sorrow, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling you and the fruit will grow. Thirdly, growth is internal. Paul is talking about the fruit, about deep change, not external traits, not seasonal traits. When I'm happy, I'm very patient and kind, right? When I'm sad, no, don't mess with me. Do not come near me, right? Paul is not talking about that. It is internal. And finally, growth is symmetrical. Fruit of the Spirit always grows together. My a good friend of mine who's a pastor, he talks about, it, it's like peeling an orange, right? You see orange, there are several pieces to it. You, you know, you can eat one, but it's not supposed to be eating just one slice of it. It's, it's the whole thing or nothing. 
that's fruit of the spirit whether again the call is not for perfection but you will have evidence of the fruit whether imperfectly you see that we see that that's the nature of christian growth now the purpose of christian freedom according to paul is to be fruitful and as we align our life right our will our volition our thoughts our actions submitting to the spirit we are enabled by the holy spirit to yield the fruit of the spirit now this is the purpose of christian life now even when i was writing i was like man what am i doing this is so hard because if you're honest you will admit the daunting nature of submitting to the spirit on a daily basis if you know anything about habits i'm i'm certain you do you know how hard it is to get out of bad ones and how incredibly hard it is to pick up good ones the question is how are we to tap into this motivational system of yielding to the spirit now this brings to our final point briefly the motivation for christian freedom it all boils down to this because we are as human beings we are rational beings right we are create we need motivation in fact i have a background in neuroscience and i was a nurse back in india one of the my favorite neurotransmitter is dopamine because that is what motivates us to get up and move right we need motivation to do anything now you might have heard of this author james clear is a new york times best selling author of the uh, book atomic habits uh, what fascinated me in that book was he talks about three layers of behavior change and he puts identity as the core layer right he makes a very insightful observation this is what he says the ultimate form of intrinsic motivation is when a habit becomes part of your identity it's one thing to say i'm the type of person who wants this it's something very different to say i'm the person who is this right true behavior in other words is identity change the only reason you'll stick with a habit is that it becomes a part of who you are your identity now let's apply this to our christian life some of you have been christians for a long time you have a disciplined life you get up in the morning you do your quiet time check all those boxes and it gets you going that's great but some of us are often frustrated with a lack of progress or worse stagnation regression in our life how do we get this motivation we often cry out like paul in romans 7 i deeply desire to glorify god but all i end up doing is satisfy my own sinful desires you see we hyper focus on our future self the better version of ourselves and utterly forget our present identity that is in fact the motivation to reinforce our future self notice verse 24 notice what paul is doing here he is asking us to focus on the claims of christianity now what are the claims of christianity christians are redeemed sinners saved by grace through faith in jesus christ united to jesus christ and are being conformed to the image and likeness of jesus christ you see the theme there do you notice the identity language there Dear friends, you don't have to look at your performance to be motivated to become a better Christian. 
I don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. You are already a Christian. You're not becoming a Christian. Sanctification, in other words, is a process of becoming who you already are. That is becoming who you are in Christ. Friends, if you put your faith in Christ today, you are a Christian. Fully robed, not, not half naked. Fully clothed in the garment of Christ's righteousness. If you're not a Christian today, this is who you need. Not motivation, not self-help books. Not looking at your performance, but Jesus Christ. Dear friends, you have an identity that is hidden with Christ in God. You're indwelled by the Holy Spirit and have crucified the flesh, the sting of death, flesh and passions and over-desires. It's God. I'm not saying it's not there, but the sting is taken away because you have put your faith in Christ. Now, when we apply this gospel truth to our heart every day, it is free. It enables us to walk in step with the Spirit. Not perfectly. That's not the call of scripture. Not perfect faithfulness. But faithfulness, loyalty. And as we live out our identity, we are enabled to bear the fruit of the Spirit for the glory of God. Friends, this is Christian freedom. You're called to be fruitful. And you're free to be fruitful. Let's pray. Lord, what a joy it is to know that we are called, we are called to freedom and we are called to be fruitful and you're not abandoned us but you empower us by the Holy Spirit. Lord, help us even as we step out of this sanctuary this morning, help us to know our identity and not to lose focus of the cross but fully rely on who we are in Christ. And I pray in his name. Amen.